following audio is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. Thanks, Peter. He is risen! He is risen! Kyle, you could always say that if you want to. Where's Kyle? Man, anybody can say that. And I love that greeting. Feel free, anytime you see me throughout the year, just say that and, and I'll respond. Uh, man, what a great morning. Good to be with everybody. And I wanted to thank Kyle, actually, for being here. Um, you know, Kyle actually joined us, led worship for us, Easter, two years ago. And that was his first time leading, leading worship for us. And so it's so great to have him here. And just thank you to the worship team for leading us in that wonderful time. What a great time to do that. And so... Uh, this is actually our third Easter service ever. We're a new church here in town. My name's Pete. I'm the pastor here. I want to welcome you guys here. And it's our third service ever for Easter, but our first indoors. Now, if you've been with us for a long time, you know that that is a very good thing. It's a thing to celebrate for us, to have a place of our own here, to meet here, and to, to be able to um, have some flexibility there. You know, normally when you go to Easter service with Holy Cross Church, you leave with two things, some candy and, and a sunburn. Uh, today... You're not getting either. I'm <laughs> sorry. So, my bad. Forgot about the candy. Uh, but I'm glad that you came out to be with us this morning to celebrate uh, our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, I don't know how many Easter services this is for you. Maybe it's 50. Maybe it's 25. Maybe it's 5. Maybe this is your first ever Easter service. However many Easter services you've been to, you know, this week is one of those weeks where you have a pretty good idea of what you're going to hear about. You're going to hear that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, became a man, that he lived a sinless life, that he died a death that you and I deserve to die. And then after three days, he rose from the dead, ascended into heaven to prepare a place for you and I. We know that. We come on Easter. This is not a, a surprise for most of you. That Easter service is one where we celebrate that Jesus is alive. And because Jesus is alive, this, this changes us. This means something to us. This has an impact in our life, wherever we are in that journey. Jesus is alive, and that changes so much. The resurrection of Jesus is not just this historical fact that we need to believe. But it is an experience that you and I need to interact with. We need to connect with the resurrection. And we want to talk about, what does that mean? How do we do that? You know, Christians call this week leading up to Easter, Holy Week. Maybe you're familiar with that, that term, Holy Week. It's a, it's a time to connect and interact with the last week of Christ uh, on earth. And, and through prayer, through fasting, through reflection and meditation, through different things, uh, through different worship things of different kinds. And one of the focal points leading up to the last hours of Jesus' life was the Last Supper. You remember that Jesus sat down with his closest friends, and he had a meal with them. And he told them at that meal that he was going to leave. And they could not follow where he was going, but one day he would come back, he would come back, and he would take them and receive them. And this is an important meal. You know, Leonardo da Vinci painted that famous portrait, the famous picture called The Last Supper. You've probably seen it. You've probably seen it maybe behind couches in, in, in uh, living rooms or sitting rooms in someone's house. Maybe you have one in your office or at your home today. 
And I remember a story surrounding that Last Supper portrait of Da Vinci that my, one of my favorite professors in seminary taught me. His name was Dr. Norm Wakefield. And he was telling us about this portrait. And he said, you know, it's, it's 11 feet, I mean, sorry, it's, it's 15 feet high by 29 feet wide. It's, it's actually, that wall is 11 feet high. And that portrait is, is 15 feet high and 29 wide, so it's bigger than that wall. That wall's about 31 feet, three-quarter inches. I'm, I know because I built it. But, uh, <laughs> and this portrait, it's, it's huge. And he was telling us a story about Leonardo da Vinci and how he went about selecting characters to sit in and, and to paint this picture. He came across this man, this young man named Petrie, a young man who sang in the Milan Cathedral to sit in as Christ. And it was his first character that he painted for that portrait. And after, after he finished painting Christ, he selected other people to sit in for other characters, other disciples. And then finally, after 25 years of working on this enormous painting, there was one character left to be painted, and that was Judas Iscariot, Jesus' betrayer. And so Leonardo went around the streets of Rome and walked around and searching for a, the right person to play Jesus' betrayer. And he came upon this man that looked like a very sinister-looking man, a man that was very burdened in so many ways, a man that was beat down by the world. And he said this would be the perfect person to play Judas. So the man agreed to sit in as Judas, and the work began, and the man was looking around the studio, and, and some images and memories were coming to mind. And he remembered he had been there before, and he looked over to Da Vinci and said, I've been here before. It was 25 years ago I sat in as Christ. You know, I remember hearing that story and feeling sad. How this could happen to a person, a person who could be vibrant and full of life, and yet over the years just become weighed down and defeated. And then I did a lot of research, and it wouldn't take you long to find out just by searching online at Wikipedia that there was actually very little about that story that's true. <laughs> it actually only took Da Vinci three years to finish his portrait. And so all of that was a lie. I actually got to call up my professor and pick a bone with him. But the point of that stayed with me, even though it wasn't a true story. The point of that stayed with me, and I want you to catch that this morning. That sin is real. And that sin weighs us down. That sin has the ability not to just affect us, but to thoroughly defeat us. Not everyone is going to become a Petri. But all of us are going to feel the persistent burden of sin that tells us to go in the opposite direction that Jesus wants us to go in. And that story will also be a lie. That when we pursue that path away from Christ, that we will find satisfaction. You see, sin lies to us. says that if we pursue it, if we indulge in it, that we will find satisfaction in a way that God could not provide. And there's very little about that story that is true as well. And I'm going to assume something this morning for all of us here, that everybody wants to avoid becoming like a Petri, to avoid becoming the person that at one point, as you look back on your life, you think, you know, there were things that were good, there were things that were joyful, there were things that were peaceful, but now, now it's, the life has been sucked out of me and I'm a burdened person. But for many of you, you might feel like it's already beginning to happen. You want to know, what does the resurrection have to do with me? Jesus is alive, and that impacts us. But what does the resurrection have to do with me in my life today? 
You know, the Bible describes our lives as nothing less than this, a battle. A battle that rages on within us. The battle between sin and righteousness. Our scripture was read and it said that in this battle, sin is the one that, sin is on one side and sin uses the power of the law to convict us, to condemn us, to make us feel beat down and burdened and heavy. You see, sin's weapon of destroying us is the law. The law of God says this, this is what you need to do. If you don't do it, you're guilty. We can understand that. We know the law. And I don't know exactly how this happens spiritually within us, like what's going on behind the curtain of how the law condemns us, how it weighs us down. But I know what it feels like, and, I, and there's a good chance you know what it feels like as well. You know what that, weight, that raging war feels like inside of you. I've broken a lot of laws in my life. I know we have some police officers in, in here today, so, but they were, I've, I've paid my debt. I've gone to the classes. No, you, you guys, speeding tickets, you've broken the law, you know what is right, but I'm not primarily talking about social laws. I'm talking about other kinds of laws that we feel weighed down by when we don't fulfill them. There are parental laws. You know, growing up in a home with parents, there are parents give you laws and rules of the house and things that you should do and should not do, and those were laws that weighed heavily on my life because I knew that I couldn't please my parents fully. I knew that I disobeyed them, and I knew that there was discipline and there were consequences, and that affected me. There are social laws, of course, and that's breaking laws of the land. There are moral laws, and these are the laws that God says, here is how you should live, and when we don't live that way, we feel guilty. We feel convicted. You know, but then there were laws that affected me, maybe more so than others as I've been growing up, and those were, I'm just going to call personal laws. You know, those were laws that I placed on myself, saying this is the kind of person you want to be. And even today, there, there's a kind of person I want to be. I want to be a good father, a good husband, a good brother, a good friend, a good pastor. And yet there are things throughout my day in life that, that let me know that I'm not as good as I want to be. And that is the law that is weighing heavily on me. So there's this ongoing battle that I know that you and I face every day. It's when we feel a certain way when we do something and we say to ourselves, why do I keep doing that? Why do I act that way? I know I don't want to be like that. I know I don't want to be that kind of person. I know I don't want to feel that way or treat this person that way or say this kind of thing. I know I want to follow Christ. Why do I keep doing the things I hate doing? You know, Paul, the Apostle Paul, he wrote most of the New Testament. He says something like that. He said, who will save me from this wretched body of sin? And he says, thanks be to God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what we're celebrating today. 1 Corinthians 15, 56 says, the sting of death is sin. And this means that hell is not just a state of mind, that it's not just a battle of a state of emotion, but it is a kingdom of oppression and guilt. And then we come to Easter, and we ask ourselves, what does the resurrection have to do with me? And today we celebrate victory over our greatest enemy. It's not a low self-esteem. It's not bad behavior. Our greatest enemy is the guilt of sin that we within ourselves have no power and no authority of overcoming. Here's your Easter exercise. I want to give you an Easter exercise, something that we can do together. 
It's a fill in the blank. How you complete this exercise will say a lot about how you view yourself, how you view God, how you view the cross, and how you view the resurrection. Here's the blank. I have victory over the pain of sin through what? I have victory over the pain of sin in my life through what? What do you put in there? I have victory over the pain of sin through, through a positive attitude, through a vision board, through lowering my standards, comparing myself to others, to trying harder, to ignoring it. And our passage says in verse 57, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The work of Christ and his death and his resurrection is the only weapon suitable for gaining victory over death and sin. The only weapon that has any power and authority of releasing us from that oppression of guilt and pain that sin can have on our life. It is the resurrection that makes the work of Christ from being merely just a beautiful memory. You see, we can look back on Christ and what he did, and we can say, wasn't he a great man? Hasn't he taught us so much? And that would be okay to say if the resurrection had not happened. But because Jesus lives, he gives us not only an example for good living, he gives us not only thoughtful nuggets of wisdom for how to live our life, he gives us victory over death and sin. Do you remember when I said the resurrection of Christ is not only a fact of history that we need to believe, but an experience that we need to connect with? You know, we connect with the resurrection by believing it all over again, every day. We connect with the resurrection of Christ by making it a part of who we are and everything that we do every day. You know, in our house, we are addicted to competition. Addicted. And I, I imagine that some of you are the same way. Maybe it's your roommates or your spouse or even your kids. You see, this is how we make cleaning up our son's toys at night a fun thing. How much do you give me if I can make this block in that basket? You know, we set it across the room. This is how awesome our life is. We set it across the room. And we take blocks and we say, what will you give me? Hey, if I can throw this dirty sock in the hamper, what do I get? Everything is about this competition. It's about this joy. And if I said, if I turned to my wife, Janae, how much do you give me if I can make this basket? And she says nothing, then I say, well, I don't want to do it then. <laughs> What's the point of victory if there's no reward? What is the point of this battle if I don't get anything from it if I win? I need Michigan to win today. <laughs> yes, because there's money on the line for me, okay? <laughs> don't tell my accountant. Oh, wait, he's here. <laughs> it is, there's, there's a reward in the victory. It is worth fighting because there's something to gain from it. A relationship with God, I don't know what you've heard or what you've been a part of or how you see him. It is not meaningless. It is not powerless. It is not fruitless. It is not just this far-off, distant feeling that you can have with God. It is a dynamic and personal and meaningful relationship that gives us great reward and great victory over the very thing that we have no power of disarming. It is a celebration of this, that God knows exactly what we deserve. And he gives us what we don't deserve. He gives us himself, he gives us victory, he gives us life in him. 
It is a celebration that knowing that Jesus, because of his work on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, that God is not angry with us, that God delights in us, that God actually rejoices over you, that God actually doesn't just love you because he has to, but he likes you, that he, you are called his beloved. What a great reward. What a great victory. The people like us, ruined people, filthy people, rotten people who have disobeyed God and broken so many laws in different ways that he could turn to us and look at us and say, because of what Christ did, I love you. I delight in you. I take pleasure in who you are. How do we get this victory? How do we make this ours? How can we live in this reality and preach that to ourselves every day, saying, because Jesus is alive, he delights in me and rejoices over me and is not mad at me? How do we get that? Because we know that not everybody lives that way. The Bible says that it's given to us. The Bible says that this victory is given to us in Christ, not by our own efforts, but by grace, by God's grace that he gives this to us. We can try to obtain it. We can try to run after it. But God says, this is mine to give and mine only. So the next question is, well, how do we get that then? How do we get that grace from God? The Bible says that we must be reconciled to God. And that's what Jesus was doing on the cross. He was dying for sinners and making reconciliation between enemies of God and God himself. Reconciliation, we know that word. It means just basically taking... You know, if you have friends or marriage or, or a situation that's very hostile, it's taking two enemies and saying, let's get together, let's work this out, let's reconcile one another. And that's what Jesus was doing on the cross. He was saying, you're distant from God. I will reconcile you to God so that you can know him, enjoy him, be blessed by him, glorify him in your life. So how do we become reconciled to God? The Bible says we become reconciled to God through faith and repentance. Now, if you're used to hearing this word, repentance, I imagine many of you have heard this word before. And if you're used to hearing that word in a negative sense, that repentance is, a, is an ugly word, a nasty word, a dirty word, that it's a, a word that makes you lower your head and say, I'm sorry, then I want to change everything you've learned about repentance. Repentance, that word, is a glorious word. It is a life-giving word. It is a life-giving reality. Because when we turn from ourselves and turn to Christ and ask for his mercy, we receive life and we receive it abundantly. Romans 10, 9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Heaven is often misunderstood as the place that people go who fight the battle and win. Who's in heaven? Well, it's the place that people go who fight the battle and they come out as victors. Heaven is for people who lose the battle and say, Jesus, save me. Jesus, win for me. Jesus, I need you. I'm losing the battle of sin. I cannot overcome it. I cannot resist it. It has enslaved me in my life and everything that I do. Save me. That's what kind of people are in heaven. 
It is then by being reconciled with God through faith that we receive the victory of Christ. And we can say, like our passage tells us to say in 1 Corinthians 15, 55, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? I hope that you hear the tone of mockery in that passage. Death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? What do you got? There is this tone of mockery that our writer, Apostle Paul, that is writing this through the guidance of God, through the Holy Spirit, is saying, Death, you've got nothing on this. You've got nothing on me. We need to mock it that way. Not by our own ability, not by our own pride, not by our own efforts. We can't say, Death, you have nothing on me because I'm, I've done a good job, I know who you are, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrestle you to, to the death. No, it's a mockery of saying, I've got a fighter in my corner. I've got Jesus who is the victor. And you have no hold over me. You have no power over me. You know, a person who is so well acquainted with the burden of sin, the burden of the law, was a German reformer named Martin Luther. And this German reformer, Martin Luther, says about the power of the law and the sting of death, he says this, and I want you to see it. He says, you have overstepped your bounds. Know your place. You are a guide for my behavior, but you are not Savior and Lord of my heart. For I am baptized and through the gospel and called to receive righteousness and eternal life. So trouble me not, for I will not follow you to reign in my heart and conscience, for they are the seat and temple of the Christ, the Son of God. These are the words of a person who understands the cross and understands the resurrection so well. These are the words of a man who understands his own weakness and inability to overcome the war that is raging inside of him. And a person who understands what Christ has done in his death, burial, and resurrection. And someone who could look at death and sin and the condemning nature of the law and say, where is your victory? Where is your sting? We believe that Jesus is alive because the scriptures say that he is alive. We believe that the resurrection is not just this miracle in history, but it is the cause of our new life. We believe that we have at one time in our life been enslaved to sin, but Christ has conquered sin. We believe that this victory is given to us by faith in Jesus Christ. We believe that a resurrection awaits us for all of us who look to Christ for his mercy, acknowledging our inability to please him, acknowledging our sin and guilt before him, and look to him and say, please have mercy on me. We believe that a resurrection awaits us as well, that we will finally see face to face completely a life free of sin and full of joy. I am guessing that every single one of us, including myself, needs to experience the joy of Easter right now, wherever you are in your life. You need the joy and peace of Easter to reign in your life. Because we're all going through some battle. What is your battle? What is your burden? What is your pain that you feel in your life? Is it marital? Is it with your, is it with your spouse? Is it at work? 
Is it the torment that rages on within you that no one knows about? Is it some deep temptation that you just cannot become free from? Is it just a lot of self-loathing and self-doubt and self-condemnation? Jesus died and rose again to set you free from that. Jesus died and rose again to give you victory over that battle. Either the law will reign in your heart and mind, or the power of Christ's resurrection will reign in your heart and mind. Do you understand me on that? There is no third direction. There is no middle ground. Either the law is continually to have power over our life, or Christ and his resurrection is alive in us and reigning in us and influencing everything we do. And we need to passionately experience and connect with the resurrection today and every day. To passionately experience the resurrection means that we truly believe in the depth of our being that we are measured before God, not by what we do or don't do, but what, by, by, by what Christ has done and continues to do in us. Our life needs to be saturated with Easter. Tomorrow it does. Yesterday it needed to. And the days going forward, our life needs to be a celebration of Easter. You see, I, I wear contacts. Many of you might not even know that. I don't talk about it a lot. I certainly don't brag about it. But it's a part of my life, and it's actually something I have to do. Every waking moment, I need to be wearing my contacts. And if I don't, without them, my life is confusion and chaos. I bump into things. I don't know where I'm going. They are so vitally important to my life because it is, it is by them that I see all of life. It is by my context that I am, that it's the lens, the literal lens by which I see everything in my life. It makes everything clear. And it puts things in a vision that, so I can see it as it really is. To passionately experience and connect with the resurrection of Christ means that we see our life and everything in our life and everything that we counter through the lens of the resurrection. Through the lens of the fact that Jesus is alive and not dead. You need to see your marriage through the lens of Easter. You need to see your children through the lens of Easter. You need to see your situation, circumstance at work through the lens of Easter. You need to see who you are through the lens of Easter. That it doesn't matter who you are and how bad you have been that Jesus thought you were good enough to die for. So we're able to say with confidence, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The resurrection of Jesus is not just this essential concept for Easter. It is a glorious welcome to you and to me to have victory in this life and forever. Let's run to the one who has victory in his hands and offers it freely to us. Let's pray. For more audio and information, please visit holycrosstucson.com.